Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson and this week I'm continuing my mini-series on what I've been calling the mini flavors of fascism, uh, which is an explanatory series about uh, big concepts or groups or categories of fascists and right-wing people. This week I'm talking about neo-Nazis. Now, by neo-Nazis, I specifically mean movements that identify with the legacy of the Nazi party, as in the German Nazi party, uh, but are usually not directly connected with its history, at least not, not anymore, and we'll get into that a little bit more later. Potentially, this is a claim of a desire to revive the Nazi party and its doctrines, uh, but not necessarily in Germany or Austria, where neo-Nazism is actually relatively weak compared to its position in countries like the United States or the United Kingdom. Uh, as opposed to fascism during World War II or immediately before World War II or other fascisms that grew up apart from Germany, uh, neo-Nazism is a contemporary movement uh, and it's about affiliation or, or affinity with the Nazi party's legacy in particular. Now, originally, of course, neo-Nazism or neo-Nazis could have been a word that would be used to describe Germans or Austrians uh, who were trying to revive the Nazi party immediately after World War II. Uh, so there is, uh, there is this history of some of these people trying to create a new Nazi party. These didn't really get off the ground uh, for a lot of reasons, uh, one of which was that immediately after the war, denazification meant that a lot of people who had been involved in the German and Austrian Nazi parties were completely barred from holding any public office of any kind or from founding political parties. Even after denazification uh, was basically abandoned in Western Germany and in Austria, and, you know, just people who uh, were essentially fully registered and obviously guilty war criminals were allowed to participate in German politics again fully openly. Um, the revival of the Nazi party in particular was not uh, really enticing for anybody because of the cooperation that was necessary between Western Germany and the United States and the United Kingdom and France uh, in order to oppose the potential influences of Eastern Germany and the Soviet Union. Uh, these movements mean that uh, the people who might have become neo-Nazis, you know, because of their fascist ideology, the one that they held, you know, probably some of them relatively earnestly during and immediately before the war, uh, it was no longer enticing, it was no longer desirable. Uh, the Nazi party uh, or the coalition that had produced it had become mainstream to the point that the true believers, the real ideologues, having been killed or imprisoned or uh, set aside immediately after the war, they no longer had the social hegemony in order to enforce their beliefs. There were some people who tried to form these new Nazi parties. For example, uh, Otto Rimmer uh, was leader of a post-Nazi party in Germany that never really got off the ground. The Strasser brothers, whom I spoke about in a previous episode, also never really got off the ground. Uh, you know, they were never successful in creating a post-Nazi party. After this, after the immediate post-war period, neo-Nazism means something much more specific. Uh, it means a sort of social formation, uh, often involved with political parties, but not really political parties like per se. Uh, usually they might call themselves a party or they might sometimes post candidates in some local small elections, but that's not really what they're about. It's more of a subcultural movement. It's more of a cultural group. Uh, it's more of a series of gangs, really. 
One of the reasons that we call these groups neo-Nazi, as opposed to just like calling them fascist in general, is, as I said before, because of their specific affinity for the kind of fascism that was espoused and practiced by the Nazi party in Germany, which, uh, if you're a listener of the podcast, you would know is quite different from a lot of the other contemporary fascisms that grew up in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s in Europe and also throughout most of the world. Uh, for example, some of the things that differentiated fascism in Germany from fascism in a lot of the rest of the world uh, is the German Nazi party's specifically uncertain posture towards Christianity. Now, of course, officially the German Nazi party was pro-Christian uh, and was, you know, uh, pro-Lutheran church and all that sort of thing. However, the Nazi party, you know, a lot of their members in secret or in a lot of their writings or in practice, you know, when we actually think about what they did, uh, they were a little bit more lukewarm towards the legacies of Christianity than almost all of their contemporaries. Uh, so if you think about the fascist party in Italy, or if we think about the Falange in Spain, or if we think about the, uh, the, you know, Iron Guard, uh, the Legion of the Archangel Michael, you know, if, if that name isn't a giveaway, uh, the Iron Guard in Romania, a lot of these groups weren't like as secular or as religiously skeptical as the Nazis were. Uh, they were in fact directly involved with the church in, in some cases with priests actively participating. This separates neo-Nazis from other fascists, uh, specifically in that they also have a somewhat suspect posture towards Christianity. Uh, specifically, neo-Nazism is also often involved with what they would self-identify as uh, paganism, neo-paganism. Uh, the Black Sun, for example, which I spoke of in a previous episode, uh, a symbol that was tattooed on the elbow of a recent attempted assassin, of Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, uh, the vice president of Argentina, uh, is a pagan symbol uh, that neo-Nazis adopted in order to create a neo-Nazi symbol. Uh, this paganism is not just because of the legacy of the Nazi party, it's also because of the neo-Nazis' affiliation and affinity towards, uh, you know, like, like Viking and, you know, Germanic people's crap. You know, they, they, they think that they're descended from, from this and they think that, you know, these people were like some true warrior race that was corrupted by a weak Jewish god. Uh, that is the extent of their paganism. Uh, this is not the paganism of, of earnest contemporary pagans. Uh, it is a, a racist caricature. Something that doesn't necessarily separate neo-Nazis from other contemporary fascists, but which is important to neo-Nazism as a movement and as an ideology, is Holocaust denial. Uh, this is extremely important both to their continued anti-Semitism and to their valoration of Nazi Germany in particular. Uh, I'm actually going to get into this more in the, sec in the next episode of this series. The next episode of The Many Flavors of Fascism is going to be about uh, a short history of Holocaust denial in the Western world, so more on that later. When we talk about neo-Nazism as a political movement, uh, I've already covered uh, the earliest origins of neo-Nazism, right? You know, as people who uh, tried to revive Nazi parties in Germany and Austria immediately after the war, this failed. Uh, however, other neo-Nazi parties uh, emerged in a lot of countries throughout the Western world, notably the United Kingdom and the United States, but also there exist examples um, from Chile to France, to Iran, to Mongolia. Some of these organizations, specifically the ones in the English-speaking world, uh, got together in the early 1960s to found an organization called the World Union of National Socialists. 
It was founded in 1962 as an umbrella group for fascist parties. It's still operative. Uh, it was an attempt to create a worldwide white nationalist uh, conspiracy organization, uh, I guess supposedly in the vein of the Comintern, you know, the Communist International uh, or the Socialist International. These are uh, organizations that support the, uh, the workings of their ideologies on an international level. Uh, the uh, World Union of National Socialists was founded by George Lincoln Rockwell and Colin Jordan of the British National Socialist Movement. Um, this meant that it had the leadership of some of the biggest neo-Nazi parties at the time. This period of neo-Nazi organization might, you know, you might call it like their attempt to revive the traditional party formation that had existed in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. This largely failed, uh, not just in the United States and the United Kingdom, but essentially almost everywhere that it was tried. Uh, instead, we move into later uh, a period beginning in, you know, let's say roughly the 1980s and 1990s that we are still in today, in which neo-Nazism is a subculture. Uh, it is too small to be a real political party almost anywhere, uh, and instead it engages in street fighting, prison gang organizing, um, you know, fascist rallies in order to promote their ideology. I, I guess sort of like one might call this lying in wait uh, for some time when they might be able to be operative more out in the open again and actually gain some power. Uh, although it doesn't really seem like a lot of these organizations have a real theory of how they might gain power. You know, it's just, they just sort of like think that being violent and being fascist will, you know, get people to join them. I don't know. I mean, I, I guess members of a lot of non-normative uh, political groups uh, believe such things. Um, Neo-Nazism is involved in some of the formations of the alt-right, uh, but largely on the sidelines, uh, because they're openly fascist, uh, whereas the alt-right attempts to be a little bit more mainstream, uh, trying to avoid using fascist symbols and fascist rhetoric openly, which neo-Nazis do just, just, just very blatantly. Uh, so if you think about neo-Nazis, you probably have an image in your head of a skinhead, right? Uh, a, a, a completely clean-shaven white man, uh, as I said in the first episode of this little mini-series about skinheads, uh, that aesthetic is deeply associated with neo-Nazism, especially in the United States and the United Kingdom, but also throughout the world. Uh, you probably also think about uh, openly displaying fascist symbols and tattoos, um, openly using Nazi flags, uh, that sort of thing, right? We associate these types of uh, uh, aesthetics and behaviors with gangs, and street violence, uh, we associate it with biker gangs uh, and prison gangs. And that those are largely the groups that we're talking about when we're talking about neo-Nazis, although some of them are a little bit more developed party formations. Uh, one, for example, is Golden Dawn in Greece, an openly neo-fascist party, an openly neo-Nazi party that did extremely well in Greek elections. Um, another example is the National Front in Britain or the British National Party. Uh, these are the faces of neo-Nazism uh, in the United Kingdom. There are several in the United States, uh, including the National States Rights Party, which is a segregationist party, and the National Socialist Movement, which up until very recently was the largest operative neo-Nazi party in the United States. Uh, however, they're in the process of being dismantled because of some major internal struggles that involved the technical takeover of the organization by a civil rights activist. The last thing that I want to get into talking about neo-Nazism is uh, another concept that people very closely associate with the idea of neo-Nazism, and that is the concept of the quote-unquote lone wolf. 
you've probably encountered this phrase before, talking about a terrorist or talking about some act of violence. Uh, usually, a you know the, the the phrase "lone wolf" brings to mind a skinhead, a, a young white man uh, who acts out alone in violence uh, against uh, people of a different race or a different religion or a different ethnic group or against women. Uh, the idea of the lone wolf, uh, the idea is that there are neo-Nazi perpetrators of violence, uh, always men, usually white, as I said, uh, who engage in this kind of violence alone, uh, as in without a group to support them or to plan the attack. Uh, this is to separate this form of terrorism, because uh, arguably it's a form of terrorism, from other forms of terrorism that are conducted by political organizations who are using this terrorism as part of a dedicated organizing or, or, or warfare campaign, right? However, I'm here to tell you that the concept of the lone wolf is a myth. Uh, it is not one that people who study the right wing use or believe in. Uh, it is a media narrative and, in fact, a right wing narrative. Uh, it is a myth originated by the right wing itself, I would argue, uh, in forums and meetings and in their coverage of things and, you know, whenever they get to be on TV, uh, trying to distance themselves from the extreme violence that these movements uh, perpetrate and that they encourage their members to engage in. So, for example, if a person who is a member of a neo-Nazi organization or is a member of some other right-wing formation engages in violence that, you know, maybe a leader of that organization didn't specifically order him to do, but a kind of violence that is heavily encouraged by that group, that is valorized by that group, that is called for privately and just sort of like openly in group forums or group chats or meetings or newspapers or something like that. How can this person be said to act, you know, to be acting alone when he was acting in an ecosystem of the encouragement and planning of right-wing violence? You know, just because somebody didn't like point at something and give him an order to engage in this violence doesn't mean he was acting alone. This concept is, is one that people use in order to distance themselves from their responsibility from this kind of violence. So in reality, almost no attacks, almost no terrorist attacks of this type uh, were committed truly alone. Uh, some of the most clear uh, examples of this, uh, of people who have been called lone wolves, but who are obviously part of a deeply entrenched right-wing ecosystem, are people like Timothy McVeigh. Timothy McVeigh was the person who, did, who committed the Oklahoma City bombings in the 1990s. And he is probably the origin of the contemporary narrative of, uh, you know, the lone wolf, like, like what people imagine when they think about a lone wolf, uh, even though he had a co-conspirator who was also put on trial, right? Uh, he had a history in the right-wing militia world. Uh, others who have committed similar acts, you know, a lot of the recent uh, shootings at you know, shopping malls and grocery stores and synagogues and churches, uh, even though these people weren't like members of dedicated terrorist organizations that had organized campaigns and plans about these kinds of acts, these people were members of right-wing organizations. They were parts of online communities. They were parts of chat groups and message boards and, you know, members of newsletters that valorized this kinds of violence, that talked about it, uh, that would you know, extol the plans and actions of previous people who have committed this kind of violence. These people were not acting alone. They were acting as part of a right-wing ecosystem that believes that that kind of violence is good and that it produces good men. And if that is not fascism, I don't know what it is. All right. 
Uh, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. If you really like the podcast, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism, all one word. You can also reach me on Gmail at 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at hist of the right. That's H-I-S-T of the right. And I am also on Twitter at fascism15. And again, that's 15 spelled out. All right. Thanks very much. And I will continue this mini series next week with a profile on the history of Holocaust denialism.